I wanted to start off by giving everyone a chance to introduce themselves and then we always like to have an icebreaker question in the beginning. So uh, today's is, what did you want to be when you were eight years old? <laughs> so if you could tell us a little bit about uh, yeah, what you're doing right now, what your affiliation is and what you wanted to do when you were eight years old, that would be great. Sure, my name is Gabriel Lavella, I'm the CEO of Common Sense. And what we're doing is we're, we're building neural interfaces to the old factory pole. What led me here? I did my PhD in the Maharbitz lab. Uh, I never worked in uh, neurotechnology before going to DARPA about two years ago. So I've never done, I did probably six months of uh, bench work in the area. In the beginning of my PhD, I put it down. I uh, did my PhD in uh, molecular nanotechnology, doing self-assembled structures for diagnostics. And then I've worked in Silicon Valley for a while, designing the MacBook, the iPhone, a bunch of other tech products. Went to DARPA, uh, was an integral part of the NSD program, N3, as well as a few others uh, in the neural interface space. Uh, and then I got a call uh, through Philip Alvelda, who is one of the program managers at DARPA. Philip uh, had taken a role as chief technical officer of a moonshot factory in Barcelona. Uh, so the idea was this company would uh, provide huge amounts of capital and launch one moonshot technology per year. The idea was the technology had to generate a billion euros in revenue and have a positive societal impact. So I went out there to, to, to work with uh, Philip and uh, started putting together this company. We got to a very late stage. Uh, they closed down Alpha and uh, Came back to the States, uh, John Viventi, who everybody probably knows, he introduced me along the way to Dima and he said, Dima's been working on this and he has some, some fantastic pioneering work in the area. Uh, so we came back to the States, incorporated, and here we are. So we're, we're, we're launching now uh, with the support of IndieBio uh, in San Francisco and we're, we're building the company from the ground up. And is that what you wanted to do when you were eight years old? Uh, you know, when I was eight, when I was eight years old, I, I wanted to uh, work at Disney World in any capacity, right? So I could have been, I you know, I could have been a character. I could have been operating a ride there, but uh, I wanted to work at Disney World. Thanks, Gabe. Sure. I'm Andreas Schaefer. I'm a neuroscientist. Uh, work at the Francis Crick Institute uh, in London at University College London. Yeah, I'm heading a research group that's called uh, Sensory Circuits and Neurotechnology Lab. It's a small lab. We're largely working on researching how the olfactory system works, working on mice, um, using a variety of uh, variety of techniques from, you know, I don't know, X-ray imaging, electromicroscopy, uh, vivo imaging, biophysiology, but more and more computational work, behavior. And part of my lab has been developing uh, neurotechnology over the last years. That's where Matt and I have been working to, together quite a long time ago, uh, ago now. I'm originally a physicist by training and I kind of, if I guess, lost all my physics knowledge and kept all the arrogance. Uh, so whether that's helpful or not, I leave for others, uh, others to judge. Um, but we're now kind of a you know, broad, broad neuroscience lab. What did I want to do when I was eight years old? I think generally I've been relatively boring and straightforward. I wanted to be a scientist already. At some point I want to remember I wanted to, I wrote in my, I think, first 
yearbook, I want to be an archaeologist, not really knowing what that was. And then I've been always between physics and, um, and uh, neuroscience. I studied physics because I thought that would be really exciting to learn more and more about. And then, you know, parallel drifted into neuroscience through my PhD and postdoctoral work. Do you ever look back at, at your decision not to be an archaeologist? Uh, no, 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 I don't like Harrison Ford enough, I think. Uh, I'm Dima Lindberg. Uh, I am professor of neuroscience and physics at NYU uh, at New York University. My lab is studying the sense of smell, of function, doing a lot of research with uh, animals, trying to understand how what the nose tells the brain and how the olfactory code is organized, what can we understand the very basic of the olfactory code. In parallel, we're trying to do some applied, for, for a few years, we tried to do some applied work in the lab, trying to use all our knowledge about how our function works to make the best uh, chemical detector in the world. This project has been going on in for a few years. It was up and down and until I got a call from Gabe and he said, hey, how about joining forces? After the first conversation, I understood that we're talking the same language and it's super cool. That actually can be done on a much larger scale. Talking to Gabe, kind of, the, the trick was to learning about the much broader opportunity in neurotechnology. I was always attentive to neurotechnology, but uh, honestly, be, building the first electronic nodes, I kind of did not see the path, and Gabe showed me the path, and we joined forces. Actually, we are part of the big uh, Alphacty Consortium, with the with eight labs trying to crack Alphacty code. The name of the consortium was Osmonauts, and uh, it's a fascinating work. And both kind of uh, on the fundamental stuff with Osmonauts, and then applied stuff with the new company with Gabe. I'm a physicist by education, and I would uh, once a physicist, always a physicist. I grew up in Russia. I didn't get my physics education first in Russia undergrad, then came to Weizmann get my. Uh, PhD in physics in low temperature fluid dynamics, and then I switched to neuroscience, and it was a torturous pass. And only to, only on my second postdoc, I started doing a function as uh, doing a fact recording since 2002. When I was a kid, as many kids in in uh, back in Russia uh, with some science kind of twist, uh, I I dreamed to become an astronaut, of course. I wanted to fly, and uh, it was a big, big disappointment because I learned that uh, having glasses and being astronaut is incompatible. So that was my first, you know, depression. <laughs> it sounds a little antiquated now, doesn't it? I mean, I know they still have some restrictions, I think, in the Air Force that you have to have. Yes, vision, yes, yes. So when, 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 I, when I get my glasses at the you know, third grade, it was a you know, big, big disappointment. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but uh, I started reading many books about you know, flights, about space that brought me to physics, and then, you know, became physicist. So uh, that's, uh, uh, that's my, my story. Dima, the last time we talked, you were looking to fill a postdoc position in your lab. Do you still have that posted? Yes, yes. For the project related to bioelectronic nodes, I'm actively looking for people and in general post for the for the bioelectronic nodes and for our recording. We have a few positions in the lab, some of them funded by NIH, Osmonauts Consortium, some of them from the new adventure with bioelectronic nodes. 
So thank you for reminding this. It's, yeah, it's quite we'll place a link to the job advert on the yes. podcast. It was Osmonaut your idea to call it Osmonaut, considering you wanted to be a cosmonaut to start with? Yeah, that's what kind of you know, <laughs> all, you know, you know, all, all converging. I was wondering. <laughs> yeah. Dima, we're, we're, we're on the same page. You know, after I got over the idea of working at Disney, my next dream was to be an astronaut as well. Yes, uh, that's the connection. For the next, for the next <laughs> six years, that, cons that consumed me. Yeah. And then you turn. Then you turn thirty-five. No. <laughs> I'm going to ask a provocative question. Let's assume that the listeners don't care about how we smell. Why should they still be interested, either from an intellectual standpoint or, or like a functional standpoint, in the way that olfaction works? Do people who study olfaction study olfaction because they want to understand smell, or is there are there other things that are interesting about it? I think it, that varies a lot. I think some do understand it simply because they're fascinated by smell itself. And for me, certainly the attraction of studying smell is that if you, you know, we, we all want to assume, understand how the human brain works. So if you want to do, if understand means sort of a mechanistic understanding, like I want to generally understand things, you want to manipulate, you want to measure in all detail, dissect anatomy, physiology, activity, structure. And then, you know, the mouse or the rat is a very good model system. Now, if you look at mice and rats, their sort of primary way they're exploring the world around them is the sense of smell. So it's a very good gateway into figuring out how their brain works. If you then look into the brain structure, you know, you have a, a anatomy that allows you to really understand better what's going on. There are much fewer brain regions that uh, interact to process smells. They are anatomically compact. So I think for me, it's an the intellectual appeal is that we have a quite confined structure where we have a realistic path towards understanding how the brain computes, how the external world, the representation of the external world gets into the brain. So I don't uh, care about smells that much. I actually, I would say I have three reasons. And the first reason actually the same, like it is because for me, the sense of smell is a window to the consciousness, to the brain, and it's a very transparent window. Basically, we're very close. The olfactory system is uh, have much less computation and much less processing before getting to the cortex and create objects. We manipulate these objects, olfactory objects, and it's easy to work with the system. It's easy to, and I just want, don't want to repeat what what Abyss said. But at the same time, I have two more reasons. First of all. It's a fascinating system. It is, let's say, the last frontier of our senses. And uh, we know how color vision works. We invested so much in understanding vision and hearing, and our function is a big mystery. And it is, I do care about our function deeply. I do care how our factory world is built, how we smell, what actually, what, what happens in the brain when we smell the rose or when we smell the coffee, how we discriminate others, what actually the, the other spaces, can we manipulate it, can, how they're mixing, and it's a lot of unsolved problems. It's a huge intellectual challenge, and I'm happy to be part of that. And the third reason actually come to me, honestly speaking, I didn't start setting up function for that, but more think about it is that we moving to a very new era this time because we all are surrounded by organic molecules. We all are smelling all the time. 
We don't have sensors, we don't have receptors, we don't take advantage of that. And all the evolution, this is probably a unique system that allows maybe us to have a look at this world of molecules, world of chemistry, that it's 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 not yet here at our, you know, we don't have access. We build a very complicated devices like uh, gas spectrometry, mass spectrometry, gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, but the, the nose does it for us. And we kind of, the whole animal world, all, all life, you know, fully integrated with the, with the chemistry. We know much more about genetics, we know much more about cellular processing, but we don't know much about the, the others around us. And nature does know. Nature takes care of that. And we actually have now access to actually understand how that the nose, the device, deals with that. And, and this is a fascinating subject. I start reading how we can smell disease, how we can smell you know, other stuff, what actually, because animal can do this. And that's fascinated me, you know, to the same level as we create objects in the brain. So what you're saying essentially, Dima, is that we have microphones that are significantly better than, you know, anything we can say or hear. We have speakers that can reproduce what we say much better. We have cameras that are much better than our our eyes. But you know, if we there's no chemical detectors that are anywhere yep. near the complexity, even of our human quite underutilized and undertrained uh, noses, right? And but if you go through and more trained that animals, is more untapped world. This is completely untapped world, and I think that it's 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 a million discoveries will be if we have a right uh, detection tools. For me, for for somebody who's a systems engineer like myself, and uh, coming from the Berkeley Sensor and Actuator Center (BSAC), um, I don't know who came up with that acronym, but uh, that's the name of the center. It's one of the most phenomenal sensors out there in terms of its the versatility of things that it can pick up. You have a natural world and one of the primary communication networks in that natural world are molecular signals, whether they're airborne or they're, they're soluble. And olfaction is one piece of that. Uh, so for me, coming from a detection and diagnostics background and somebody who's innately interested in those things, olfaction is just a fantastic world that's that's really interesting so many things are communicated across that channel and it's hidden it's hidden it's hidden from everybody and to me that makes it more interesting and what makes it kind of intriguing in some ways is that you know we have a relatively poor language relatively poor intuition for what one can do with smells but if you look at what what obviously many animals are doing with it in terms of navigating, detecting, figuring out where they are, where they have to go, what they're, what what the in the olfactory environment is. It seems like the complexity that they can extract from their environment is very similar to the complexity that we can extract from our environment with vision, let's say. And you know, I think probably humans are much better with uh, with olfaction uh, than they like to admit uh, admit to themselves. But this, I think this discrepancy between our intuition and what actually, what the processing power of the system has is quite, sometimes difficult actually for studying, but quite, quite intriguing. Fima, you brought up the idea of outer space. Um, I think people would be interested to, to hear about how you think of outer space, because it's not a three-dimensional space. Um, can you, can, you know, particularly you and Andreas, can you kind of unpack that for us a little bit? 
I love this question. Uh, thank you again, to bring it up. Let's start with a kind of uh, color space. We have three receptors and we, we know that color space can be represented by two-dimensional diagram. Many of you guys saw that, uh, you know, the color diagram that you can uh, draw all the colors and show how each, so different colors close to each other. You can draw the pictures of that. You can kind of uh, create uh, mixed colors on this diagram. If you have two sources, everything in between can be can be mixed and created colors in between. What about um, others? With others, uh, just let's do the very simple uh, mental experiment. I give you to smell an orange and I give you to smell an apple. And these are two independent objects you kind of both well recognized, well known. And now I give you to smell, and imagine you never smelled a lemon and I give you first time in your life to smell a lemon. You immediately tell me that lemon will be closer to the uh, orange than to the apple. So what does it tell us? That we have internal metric between orders. We can show the similarity or distances between orders. Now we can add other orders there. We can add, uh, 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 you know, grapefruit or banana or coffee or rose and on and on and on and start measuring the distances. Are they two-dimensional? Are they three-dimensional? So initial idea when this, uh, uh, when our factory separate has been discovered, that it is a huge number of dimensions. And it basically the analogy was taken that if if color space have three receptors, dimensionality is two or three, you know, in humans, 300 types of receptors that maybe dimensionality 300. But I believe, and there's a lot of evidence that the dimensionality of the space is much smaller. I don't want to say how small it is, and you know, it's 5, 10, or 15, but definitely not 300. But why this is important? Because A, this space of the external stimuli exists. You, you can create any orders by chemistry, but that space is projected to the cortex, to the, your brain. And when you smell something, you actually immediately kind of can establish the distances. So this is a kind of, you can make this measurement and you can uh, kind of perceptual judgment. And that means that that projection, the understanding how this projected, how we make this judgment is super important for neuroscience, for, 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 for computation. And knowing the space of this dimensionality and structure of the space is important for neural presentation. And that part of the big, big, big effort in my lab that we tried to, to, to achieve. I'm going to press you on this for a second, Dima, because we just had a podcast on dimensionality reduction. And what do you think the kind of latent space of olfaction is? Do you think it's 299 dimensions or do you think it's five? I think it's 10 maybe 10, something, I don't know. Um, I don't want to give exact numbers, but it definitely way, way, way smaller than number of total number of receptors, but it probably more than two. And if it would be two, we would already uh, have been discovered this. Uh, <laughs> oh, and I would probably will be doing something else. If it will be 300, I also will start doing something else. What do we know from psychophysics? You know, when the wine tasters and the perfume smellers uh, try to establish categorical labels like uh, do we have a sense of what do people think the dimensionality is so probably asking why smellers about the dimensionality of the space it's would not lead us too far <laughs> uh, 
but there was a few studies about that and um, yeah, trying to um, kind of present the dimension, uh, two dimensionality reduction in other space by asking subjects to characterize the orders of multiple descriptors and then many orders with many descriptors and many subjects and then trying to find the low dimensionality um, representation of this space. Uh, in some work with the limited studies, this actually uh, turns out, actually this work has been done by close collaborator Alex Polakov and I participated in this work. This work uh, shows that uh, the uh, perceptual space can be very well approximated by some non-linear uh, two-dimensional manifold. It has a, a potato chip shape, but I think that uh, that the dimensionality is higher, and the uh, study was definitely limited with a small number of of orders. But what we learn from there that it is small. We don't know if it will be two or three. Maybe it will be seven, but it's much smaller than what is expected from the number of receptors. Noam Sobel, uh, a professor at Weizmann Institute, has a lot of effort. Um, uh, there's no still exact numbers, but he kind of converging to the same ideas. I wanted to kind of talk about, mention this one of the remarkable work recently has been published in Nature about this. If we don't understand the dimensionality of the space, so we may create the position that we may come to the same spot by, diff by, by different mixtures, by creating different passes. So same, Think like in color, we can create the green order by mixing blue and yellow. So that never been done in a functional and systematic way. And there was a recent paper by Noam Sober Lab when he was able to create absolutely undiscriminable order percepts by mixing very different mixtures. That tells us that dimensionality probably small, otherwise it would be very difficult to do this. What sort of data would you need to be able to be able to solve that problem? That's a hard question. Yeah, it's a hard question. You had access to an infinite amount of data. Well, we need to ask many, many people about many, many orders and ask them to discriminate them uh, or mm -hmm. to characterize them. And many people that have good verbal descriptors for their orders, reliable verbal descriptors, which I think is one of the issues with many of those kind of um, uh, perception psychophysics studies, that people are just not very good in finding the right, the right words as well. No. There have been a lot of studies in the sensory world where people record brain activity and then they compare the, their ability to decode with the animal's behavioral output. And sometimes they find like they can do better than the animal. Sometimes the animal appears to be doing better than them, but not as much. <laughs> I'm curious, you know, do you think if you went into the olfactory bulb and did a large recording and then you trained on that and then you compared that to people's subjective descriptions, do you think there'd be a, a discrepancy? Do you think that it gets winnowed down later in the in the pipeline, or do you think you'd find the same thing? I think it's certainly maybe stepping back to, back a bit, there are different ways to look at odor space, right? One is, you know, just the, the chemical space, just the, the chemicals that are out there. You can find chemical descriptors, and then you can sort of look at the dimensionality of that. The other is the one that uh, maybe is the most relevant one, the sort of perceptual odor space that uh, Dima mentioned. And then there would be, you know, the dimensionality of odor representations. So you so the all possible neural activities that are evoked by all possible uh, chemicals. And certainly that more complex than what, uh, what humans or animals would be reporting behaviorally. 
when you specifically with your question, what uh, what would I expect in the olfactory bulb? I mean, the great thing about olfaction is that essentially all information goes through the olfactory bulb, is processed there, and then distributed to all kinds of other places in the brain. So, any information that human animal receives about the external chemical world will be represented in the olfactory bulb. So, if we can record activity from all neurons or all projection neurons, all those neurons that lead from the olfactory bulb somewhere else, then we will have a representation that is better than what, uh, higher dimensional than what anyone, what anyone would record. Practically, I think anyone who has started recording from a few hundred cells in an olfactory bulb will always find decoding that is at least as good as what the animals or the animal's behavior reports. Andreas, can you tell us a little bit about the overall architecture of the olfactory system? Uh, especially the bulb and then going to piriform cortex, just so people can think about how does information flow when it, after it hits their nose? Odors, so essentially any any chemical that's volatile, that's in the air. So I'm talking largely about mammals, it's inhaled. It, it hits receptors uh, in the nose. That's uh, receptor molecules sit on receptor neurons. There are a few hundred different types of those receptors, approximately three, 400 in humans, maybe about a thousand in mice but on the order of a few hundred in most mammals. And then these receptor neurons, they send their axons, so their processes that realize information uh, further down the line. They send these processes into the structure we've been talking about, the, uh, the olfactory bulb. And they are all those receptor neurons that have the same receptor. So you can think of that code for the same kind of chemical feature. You know, if you're into chemistry, maybe it's an, in an aldehyde group or a particular aspect of a benzene ring or something like that. Um, or you can think of maybe slightly simplifying of, you know, they code for fruitiness or sweetness or some aspect of floralness or so. All these receptors, um, receptor neurons, they send their axons into one or a few small distinct structures in the olfactory bubble. And there they make connections, they make synapses with a couple of different types of neurons. But interestingly enough, they also already make synapses directly with those neurons that send information to other brain regions, so the projection neurons, mitral and tufted cells. And so they send their send send on information to, for example, the piriform cortex, which is the structure, the structure of the mammalian brain that's thought to be involved in categorizing or memorizing or recalling older memories. But they also send their axons into different other structures, like you know, part of the cortical amygdala, so the region dealing with say, emotion, anxiety, things like that. They send direct connections into part of the hippocampal formation, the interrhinal cortex, possibly to do with some kind, some other aspects of uh, other aspects of memory and categorization, but also in a few other smaller, smaller substructures. And within the olfactory bulb, so this is only sort of two steps down from the nose, but within the olfactory bulb, there are approximately a million neurons in a mouse, and I think probably roughly the same, uh, same in humans. And these million neurons do some kind of computation. They implement some kind of algorithms that allows animals to extract specific type of information from the surrounding. And I think it's fair to say we've spent probably about 20 years or so working on a variety of those local processes in the olfactory bulb. And it's fair to say that we don't really understand what kind of information they're extracting, how they allow animals to get a better picture of what the world is. But the general architecture, you have the nose, receptors in the nose, send information to the olfactory bulb, from the, there it gets processed in some way and sends information to a variety of, of downstream areas across the brain. Dima, is there anything you'd want to add to that? All information obviously is on the receptor type and you ask should, what we should learn if we record from the receptors. I think it's a similar, again, the, the analogy, if we would be able to, uh, to make a transformation from the receptors 
to the perception, it's the same thing like we will be able to do to predict the colors from the, from the spectrum. If we know the spectral property of individual color receptors, and from there we can predict the color. Color is the perceptual variable, and spectrum is the physical variable. The same thing here, we have the orders, that the physical variables, different orders, concentrations, and if we know the property of the all receptors, then maybe that would be enough to build uh, the transformation to the perception. In ideal situation, we can build a big table, which is boring, but maybe we'll be able to make a theory like a color, in the color thing, that we can predict perception during uh, having the receptor property. And in this case, recording from many, many orders from many receptors is what actually also tells us how our function works. And um, one of my excitement about the new adventure with the bioelectronic nose and, uh, uh, is that the technology that we're developing will allow us to record not from just small number of receptors, but a huge number of receptors. Maybe I, I don't want again to say the exact number, but to carve up with a, with a proper brain machine interface to, to connect to much larger number of receptors, and that will give us a unique, unique information that will uh, help us not only to solve practical questions and define specific orders, but to understand how function also. And if I smell like my beer or a lemon or some some normal smell, is is there usually one receptor in the nose that's this picking that up, or does it activate all of them, or like what's generally happening when you smell a natural odor? I usually give my students kind of an example of, you know, one odor that activates one specific receptor. And if that receptor in a human has changed, people smell, perceive that odor as different. And they understand as one example. For some people, it smells beautiful, floral. Others don't smell it. Other things, it smells like urine. Um, beautiful example. Really not typical. <laughs> most, okay. most, odors, most odors engage with most, even single, single types of molecules engage tens to hundreds of receptors to varying degrees. Only the combination of these activity patterns actually encodes for a specific order. But even more complicated, any, you know, your beer, I mean, you might have a Belgian beer, I assume, that probably has a rich number of, um, a number of different flavors that come in it. So hundreds exactly. and hundreds Exactly, whereas of as German beer would be, what I guess, what you call a monomolecular <laughs> odor. <laughs> Beautiful in its purity, exactly. Um, so yeah, but even so any normal natural smell will have tens, hundreds, sometimes thousands of different components, which makes actually the job of a perfumist also very tricky. You know, you put together mixtures of odors and they start smelling completely different in a still very poorly predictable uh, predictable pattern. Gabe, that sounds very different than a man-made sensor array. Usually an engineered sensor array has individual sensors with high specificity, high affinity. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm yeah. curious, yeah, how, how do you think about that when you're, when you're using the olfactory system in an engineering context? It's really a shift in mindset, right? I mean, it's different from creating like a, an assay type uh, sensor where you're, you're looking at a specific binding pattern, right? Uh, molecule A binds to molecule B or surface A binds to surface B and you get some sort of signal out, right? It's a definitive molecule that you're detecting or different uh, techniques like eye mobility spectroscopy or, or other forms of spectroscopy, you're looking at individual molecules, right? And discerning that individual molecule. When you migrate to the olfactory bulb and you have this sort of binding affinity where 
an individual molecule can bind, you know, as, as Andrea said, to scores of different receptors uh, with, with a different binding affinity, with a different pay-on and pay-off rate, right, that, that really distinguishes what that code is, right? Uh, so it's, it's a huge shift in mindset, and I think there's, there's something more elegant about it in the sense that with this set of receptors that have been engineered by evolution over the course of tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years, uh, you're able to detect a wealth of different molecules by not having this high specificity for one molecule. I think that's really remarkable, and I think it's a, it's a huge shift in mindset. And it's been something that's been extremely difficult to reproduce. So even finding a surface, finding a surface that can possess those different affinities has been an extremely tall order. They call it the, the field of machine olfaction. And machine olfaction has been around for you know 30 years or so. It's made progress, but it hasn't come anywhere close to doing what the nose can do. Andreas and Dima, what's the most controversial discussion right now going on in olfactory physiology? What's the most heated topic? Why primacy coding is wrong, no? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me challenge Andreas who said that you need, you need uh, hundred or, uh, hundreds of receptors to smell the beer. And I'm saying that maybe 20 would be enough. I didn't say you need hundreds. I just say, you know, beer will activate hundreds. Probably three or yes, four receptors that's... are enough to, um, to distinguish. I mean, to me, I think, it's certainly my, my specific view, to me, the most controversial thing is that, you know, lots of people study kind of, you know, what's happening in the cortex. Lots of people study what's happening in the olfactory bulb. But the sort of elephant in the room is that we have a million neurons that do some kind of computation. And they must be there for a purpose. But actually, all behavioral tasks people give animals or humans can be solved without any of all these computations. So I think we as a field are just tackling, um, tackling how olfaction works without really, really um, acknowledging the complexity of the challenges the, the system is able to solve. I, I like to think it's a bit like studying the visual system and you say, well, what the visual system does is it distinguishes colors. Which, you know, is a small aspect of what it is, but it does shapes, so depth perception, recognizes faces, all that. And I think all these are like, how do you navigate? How do you, how do you find, how do you find the distance of an odor source? How do you figure out which parts of a stimulus belong to a given source? All that, from my, my view, is that a lot of, there's a lot of information beyond just the chemical, just which, which odor molecule or which composite odor it is. It's like, what's the structure, what's the temple structure of the, of the, the whiffs of an odor that go to, you know, what can you extract from all this information? That's what actually requires a lot of computation. So I think the, maybe the controversy from my perspective is the ele more an elephant in the room that we have a million neurons and no one knows what they're really doing. Uh, Do you agree with that statement, Dima? I kind of agree with this and I would like to add something else that there's a culture of studying kind of an function that we, when we observe the, let's say, response of the glomerular response, receptor response to an odor, Everybody thinks that every, every response is somehow uh, necessary for something. But maybe in reality, a brain needs to read this information. Brain needs only a small portion of this information. And how this is sorted is actually a fascinating question and not clear what is actually useful, what is not useful. Because when you, let me give you again an analogy with the vision. 
our brain is very good at recognizing faces, but it's much more important to look at the person to the eyes and see the features on the uh, on the near the eyes and how the shape of the eyes and let's say the ears or the the hairs hairs can be changed. Somebody don't have hairs or something like that. Uh, so different features have different weight and how this is processed, how the relevance is processed, and what is the relevance in our face system is unexplored, uh, unexplored territory, partially because we didn't have tools, we didn't have approaches. And maybe the complexity of the computation in the in alpha about the cortex came with the judging and manipulating this relevance. For example, when animal needs to navigate, it needs to first understand this is its order, and then where it is, and then act on it. But Andreas may say something else on, on that regard. No, I fully agree. I mean, we need to understand what is actually, what is it that, what, what are the stimuli, what are the tasks that animals need, are interested in, in order to figure out then, you know, how information is encoded and processed. And I think the hints can come from very different, that can, can come from looking at the ethology of what animals are doing, can be kind of, you know, bottom up, looking at the circuitry and what the circuitry actually, actually does. And certainly the sort of tools of, you know, like, like Dima's work selectively actually manipulating the the representation of a stimulus and see how how do you change the representation of the stimulus to the point that the animal perceives it as being uh, still the same or different are the kind of tools that allow us to understand what's represented still think the complexity of stimuli we've been we've been giving um, is just completely under under challenging the system just as a small snippet of what what animals are normally dealing with i'm really glad that you talked about tools because that was the next thing i wanted to ask you about what is the state of the state of the art in recording the neural activity associated with smell and decoding those recordings. Um, what are the what are the modalities for getting the data? You know how how well can we do reconstructing what an animal is smelling? Yeah, I mean I'm I'm happy to start and then um, and even consider uh, uh, continue. So the tools that we use to study uh, neural activity in the in the mouse brain, let's say, to study smells is not so different than for other other systems neuroscience questions. We can use imaging tools to look at individual neurons. We can look at we can use uh, electrophysiological recordings. So the differences are a little bit probably on the subtle side. Imaging, we have the advantage that the main structure we're interested in is actually superficial. We don't have to you know, go through large parts of the brain to actually access those neurons, which also means we can not only record, but we can also stimulate selectively individual regions or even down to individual cells quite effectively. On the electrophysiological side, maybe, um, maybe from using traditional uh, electrical recording techniques, patch recordings, so very targeted recordings from individual cells quite well because the structure is quite superficial. Um, doing extracellular recordings is maybe a bit more tricky in the olfactory world to do on a large scale than it is in other regions because traditional high uh, channel count uh, recording techniques rely on silicon probes where most of the recording sites sit along one or a few sort of linear axes. Whereas most of our cells we are interested in studying the population of the output should sit in sort of a sheath. So recording techniques like the ones developed at Prodromics or what my lab has been working on for a while where you have bundles of wires are more effective to capture a large number of those uh, output neurons. I think what we are lacking in terms of ability to understand recordings compared to other brain regions is probably a good understanding of the 
composition of different neurons. In um, most neocortical areas, people understand quite well there are some other sort of statin positive interneurons, there are pervalumin neurons, there are different types of pyramidal neurons. Uh, and we don't have very good genetic markers or understanding what these different cell types are doing. So we generally tend to record, we tend to lump together different cell types, that different cells that probably correspond to different cell types and possibly different roles at this point. It's only slowly that we start getting a handle on what types of cells are there, which will help us to mechanistically understand what's, uh, what's going on. Uh, I'm very much looking for the big screen of uh, a large number of receptors for many others. And here I actually would like to let Gabe talk about others that may be developed for that because it's, it's a new alternative technology that is when we're doing imaging, we're limiting ourselves to the superficial part of the bulb and we can record activity of the top layer that is actually glomerular layer that is receptor layer or the very first processing layer. But Gabe is proposing and what we're kind of developing through the, uh, you know, through the company and together we're developing the alternative way to measure large number of receptor activity. We're basically taking an electrode-based approach where we're using a electrode array to measure local field potentials. So we have a grid of electrodes. We try and get, we're trying to get the pitch of those electrodes to a point where we're able to have singular gomeruli resolution. Mm -hmm. And we can watch, you know, spatially and temporally the signals coming in into the olfactory bulb, right? So we're intercepting it at a point before a lot of this processing takes place and those signals get filtered and, and uh, sent to the brain. So it's a way of looking at the outside of the olfactory bulb. We're doing it electrically, but you know, there's optical techniques as well, uh, you know, well-known techniques, calcium imaging, uh, which gives you fantastic spatial resolution to record those signals. From our perspective, the two most important tools that we're using are calcium imaging and doing electrode recordings using arrays, micro ECOG type arrays. Just to add to give so the, the, the very interesting aspect of the grids that we almost hoping it's one moment to wrap almost all the bulb. I don't think we can wrap all the whole bulb, but almost all the bulb in these grids and collect the information that will be extremely hard to get to any uh, any imaging recording. This is why I am so excited about this technology that we developed with Gabe. I, I wanted to ask in terms of the coverage of the bulb and odor space that we were talking about earlier, what do you feel like you can cover all of odor space and do you think you have to? Dima, we've had a lot of conversations about this and you know it's, it's, it's very key to how we're going to develop our technology. Dima, do you want to Tackle it. So we, we started with 64 electrodes on the surface of the bulb, and we were able to detect some others, discriminate some others, but it's definitely not sufficient to get a comprehensive picture of the other space. So imagine if you can get an electrode, surface electrode, that wrap all the bulb, maybe 60% of the bulb. We can put it on the lateral side, on the dorsal side, it really will require a fantastic surgical skills, but it is in the realm of possibilities. Now the technology became available to collect so much electrophysiological data, and um, we probably wouldn't reach full coverage, wrap completely whole bulb, but to access a large portion of the bulb would be 
quite possible. Now, if we can do it, we can also start playing different tricks. For example, if we're missing some specific receptors under our electrode, uh, our genetic tools will allow us to move receptors under, this, uh, under the electrode array. And the work of my, co uh, my colleagues who are factory geneticists already proved a possibility of say, working together with the laboratory of Tom Boza, who can overexpress specific receptor on the dorsal part of the bulb, or move one receptor to position of different, uh, to different locus. And a combination of genetic uh, manipulation and uh, novel technology is, is just open, amazing opportunities. It's not, it's not inconceivable to even reach sort of the uh, ventral side of the olfactory bulb, is the output neurons with, um, with you know, free photon imaging or a combination of, you know, ultrasound imaging, etc. Not for a, a BCI or BMI, but from a, uh, from a research perspective. It's the advantage is the structure we're looking at is indeed really directly under the skull. And its size is on the order of maybe two millimeters or so. We would have to go to two and a half millimeters. So it's still, still difficult, but the next couple of years might make it possible to, to access the entire, the entire olfactory world, if there's good scientific driving questions to do. If we had a, uh, a, a microwire technique or nanowire technique where we could use something penetrating uh, that was of sufficient scale, we might be able to get access to those glomular-like complexes on the ventral side. But with the technology that we're developing, we don't plan to get access because of that innervation that's coming through the cribriform plate up into the bottom, the ventral side of the bulb. If we try to cover anything around it, we would sever those connections. So we're, we're trying to get as much of the bulb covered as possible using an electrical technique. What about expanding the receptor repertoire? Is there any interest in expressing exogenous receptors? Like, I don't know, gunpowder receptor or whatever it is that the military is interested in? Is that, ha have there been examples of dropping in engineered receptors into the olfactory system? They have been early on also in demonstrating that any sort of G protein coupled receptors, these sort of general class of receptors called, can actually be used to instruct, instruct formation of glomeruli. I don't think in a, in a mouse there has been much drive so far to put in different receptors in order to detect new things simply because the repertoire of a thousand receptors is already capable of detecting a, a, a very large fraction of all chemical volatiles. I give you one interesting example, and that's the work has been done recently in collaboration with uh, Tom Bozelab. He take a one specific receptor and overexpress it significantly. Kind of the number of glomerular instead of two on the same of a bulb was 80. And he measured the behavioral threshold to that specific ligand, which is more sensitive. Behavioral threshold doesn't change. Adding more glomerular doesn't make you more sensitive. It's kind of counterintuitive, but that means what that means that our factory system is actually so well debugged and working at its best performance, so it's very hard to improve it. Unfortunately, I, I can't smell carbon monoxide. I wish I had a receptor for carbon monoxide, <laughs> especially uh, now that ev everyone's houses are shutting down and, and we're, uh, we're, we're heating our houses by the uh, fireplace. 
odor space doesn't encompass every hum every molecule. I mean, of you're right. It's it's well. I think it's well possible that that you know that for certain things that indeed do not carry any smell. On the other hand, I think the it will be a stretch to at this point to think of many molecules that are beyond the detectability of um, of a mouse olfactory receptor repertoire. So if you think of you know, um, BCIs for mouse olfaction in order to detect specific patterns of volatile chemicals that might be associated with, you know, specific disease or, you know, a specific, you know, explosive or something. There will, uh, my sense at this point would be that all these carry enough information across these repertoire of a thousand existing receptors, that the challenge will not be engineering a new receptor to plug it in and allow for detection, but actually to stably and robustly acquire the data along the spirit of what Gabe and Dima are working on in order to then de robustly decode information from that. But it's certainly well conceivable, like the examples that uh, Dima gave, I mean, I think for the last 25 years, people have been working on engineering specific receptors in the mouse, moving glomeruli a little bit, replacing receptors, um, studying the difference in point mutations in receptors. There is a, that, that is a relatively uh, tangible challenge to then replace individual receptors, create new glomeruli, uh, to create new receptors. So if one had a good reason, that would probably be a relatively simple problem compared to some others. You know, there was, there was a paper out not too long ago, the McGann paper, and he was he was talking about some of the specific anosmias. Carbon monoxide is one, oxygen you can't smell, of course. As Andreas mentioned, there's very few of these that are, you know, molecules that are bigger than one or two atoms. Once you start crossing that threshold of two atoms, there's usually a receptor that's capable of picking it up and the olfactory system is capable of, of recognizing it. But certainly uh, the, the flip side of the fact that uh, you know, mammals, let's talk about mice again, that mice can detect almost any volatile is that it makes behavioral experiments uh, with these little chaps extremely challenging. You really have to think of all the possible controls to make sure that they're not able to detect whatever spurious odor there might be. Remember, I think one of my first extensive behavioral experiments. I spent, I worked through the night to learn that a mouse that I was training, it could smell whether I had touched a tubing from the outside or not. So the subtle differences of you know, having touched one tubing and not the other was something the animal readily learned within a few tens of minutes. So you always need to really make sure you do yeah. the, right, the right kind of controls. The great thing about that notion is of course that any set of volatile chemicals that differs from any other set of uh, volatile chemicals. For example, you know, a cancer of one sort or uh, cancer of a different sort and uh, the breath of people. In principle, that's, that's, uh, that difference in smells, or the difference, if, if there is a difference in, in those volatile chemicals as there will be for many of those diseases, that's something that mice should be able to learn to detect or even more simply, if you're able to record directly, you should be able to record decode reliably. So I think that's uh, quite an ex really an exciting perspective. Gabe, mm -hmm. what would the implications be if we had a high data rate BCI in the olfactory bulb of a mammal that, yeah. that we could take around wherever we want? One of the things that it would enable us to do is to detect the, the hidden fingerprints of all sorts of things that aren't apparent with, with optical systems. So let me give an example. It's kind of like the advent of machine vision. If you have machine vision and you look in the back of a truck, you could see in the back of that truck, hey, there's 10 boxes back here. Uh, there's three pallets. 
these are the sizes of the boxes. If you had a system that was capable of this broad diversity and sensitivity for molecular airborne molecular detection, you would be able to tell things like there's an orange in that box. You might be able to tell things like it's not just an orange in that box, but the orange in the box is from Valencia. So different oranges have different scents. You'll be able to tell, is there an invasive species on board? Are there amphetamines present? Where was the truck previously at? So it's picking up all these senses to drive it. All of these chemical signals are contained within that sense space. With a sensor like this, it would be phenomenally incredible. It would impact a lot of different industries. It would impact the food and beverage industry, certainly. Human you know, safety and health. It would impact medical diagnostics. We know that a lot of different diseases have unique sense. We know, well, COVID, right? You know, you've seen all the papers that have come out on COVID detection with dogs detecting it with extremely high fidelity and reliability. And they're picking up the volatile organic compounds of those diseases. So all of these things in the, in the world, both man-made and natural, a huge number, if not the majority of them, have a unique fingerprint. And that's becoming really critical uh, in the world, right? It's becoming critical because we have the massive movements of, of people and goods across borders. And as a result of this, that leaves a lot of vulnerability. But we also have material goods that are coming across borders that are dangerous in a lot of ways. We introduced invasive species here you know, in Pennsylvania. We have nightmare scenarios right now because of all the different invasive species that have come over from Asia and are destroying the wildlife here and crops and things like that. So there's, no, there's really no detector that's good enough to do that. A system like this could potentially pick up those things and could have a lot of market value and could impact a lot of industries. Kind of a long-winded answer, but uh, you know, I think it could be extremely impactful to the world. I think at yeah. this point, there are actually a fair number of investors that tune in, and I think many of them would be really interested to hear, what is the first thing? What's the, what's the, the killer app? What's the, the big market that's accessible to mm-hmm. olfactory BCI? You know, I think, I think the first market is one that is low friction, a market where animals are already used. And that's, you know, important border inspections, cargo container inspections, domestic policing, domestic security. Those are areas where they're already using a host of different animals. They understand the technology, and I think they would be early adopters and, and, and willing to use it and, and greatly benefit from it. Do you have a sense of what the market size for that is? It's huge, and it's deceptively huge. In the United States, there's about 50,000 or so detection dogs that are deployed. That's doesn't include the private space for private sector use. Worldwide, it's probably around 150,000. That's the number of units that are out there, animal units that are used in detection. The market size is in the billions, It's easily in the billions. What would it mean for the people who are at the border using dogs right now if they could read their dog's mind? or rat's mind or rabbit's mind or whatever animals. It significantly enhance their ability to prevent illicit materials and contraband from entering the country. And illicit materials could be things of agricultural importance, right? It could be a new invasive species. It could be meat products that should not be entering the country. 
It could be a new form of explosives. In our meetings with different security forces in the EU, had informed us that you know a lot of different terrorist organizations switch up the chemical compounds because they know existing ones might be detected. They're clever enough to re-engineer the explosives to get them through. It might be narcotics, different forms of drugs, cash, electronics, all sorts of things. In analogy to a discussion we had on the podcast earlier about speech decoding and some of the work by, for instance, Eddie Chang's lab, you know, we talked about the difference between kind of an open set and closed set and the difference between trying to read, you know, speech in the most general terms where someone can think any words they want and continuously decode the brain activity associated with thinking about words versus training a classifier to tell the difference between cat and dog. I'm curious when you think about what an olfactory BCI would look like, do you think that it's going to be more the case that you're training on specific compounds or training specific classification tasks? Or do you think you're going to be able to have a catalog and just go, that's TNT, that's spoiled meat, that's an invasive beetle? Mm-hmm. More, more specifically, pick out the underlying odorants. One of the things that we can do and they do right now with detection dogs is they'll train on a group of elements and they'll put them all together. We can do that. So with explosives, you know, there's 19,000 different types of known explosives that are used and things that are used to make the explosive that could be separated and then shipped. So it's an extremely large number. Being able to detect each one specifically and forming a catalog is one of our goals. We want to be able to have that sort of resolution to say specifically what it is. We're using a technique called federated learning. The idea is that training does not need to take place in one area. Animals all over the world can be trained on a scent and then every other animal will be able to then detect that scent. That's one of our goals. How stereotyped are the brain maps across animals of the same species? From the engineering perspective, imagine if you have a set of uh, identical receptors, let's say, and each you detect the signature of one order and another uh, on one uh, detector, you can transfer the signature to different detectors and detect it with different instruments. Let's say all gas chromatographer can be synchronized. You can record the the profile of very complex wine on one GC machine and another, and it will be more or less the same. With animals, it's harder. But we do believe that, you know, by calibrating and um, kind of uh, synchronizing two different uh, brain-machine interfaces uh, on one and another animal, using some sets of uh, orders as the fiducias or anchors, we can align each other's noses and make them more or less working in sync. So when a new order will be detected by one machine, you can detect the signature by another machine or by another animal. But that's to be discovered, to be done. From a biological perspective, you know, we all of us can be trained to discriminate Cabernet Sauvignon versus Pinot Noir, and we can do it in more or less the same way. And we have our factory world slightly different, but overall it's the same because we grew up in the same environment, we know the same orders, we've been told that this is apple and this is orange. So your impression when you smell a new order, a positioning this order in space of other orders, 
would be very more or less the same like mine because we've been trained on the same sets of orders initially. And that's actually give me a lot of hope that we can reproduce it with main machine interface to be determined. And I will add this quickly. In terms of building that catalog, it's something that's continually expanding. Every time we upload the profile for a new detected scent, that's permanently there. This sensor is continually learning. You know, It's speculated that animals can detect up to billions of scents. I'm not gonna say trillions, but billions of different scents. So given an infinite amount of time, that catalog can keep growing and growing. You're and growing. referencing a paper by Leslie Vossel, right? Yes. I think that Rick Gerken actually wrote a uh, response to that paper, pointing out perhaps some, some deficits with it. Do we think that there are trillions of odorants, or do we think that it's uh, potentially a smaller number? Uh, Matt, I know you like controversy, and I'm happy to, uh, to step in here. I think it's a, this is a brilliant paper from Andreas Keller and Leslie, uh, Leslie Vossel and, um, and several others um, um, at Rockefeller. Uh, it's a beautiful paper with a very systematic psychophysics in humans about their, I mean, the human ability to discriminate between different mixtures. On some level, that's sort of a, maybe on a broader scale, I think it's quite a technicality because what's I think really also very interesting about the paper is sort of scientific discourse, because they did the amazing thing in actually immediately publishing the entire data set they collected, every single bit of raw data together with that paper. So everyone could look at it and try to understand exactly how did they come to their conclusion. And they were, Quite quickly afterwards, two very interesting discussions emerging from that paper. One was along the line of discussing the specific statistics in the paper, which was a very useful thing. Um, and that was the one Mr. Um, Castro and Rick Gherkin you mentioned. The other, the other um, paper that discussed the results of this, uh, of this manuscript and the data interpretation was by Marcus Meister, who kind of looked at what are the underlying assumptions. And I think that was that turned out to me being the most dramatic conclusion of that paper and the following discussion. And it comes back to, to a discussion we had here a, a little bit ago about the dimensionality of odor space, because the conclusions that uh, Russell Keller and colleagues drew from their, their sort of very clean data set, the conclusion they drew was based on the underlying assumption that odor dimensionality is relatively high, it's sort of tens of dimensions, which I think everyone probably at that point in time would have said, yeah, sure, that's the, we have hundreds or thousands of receptors, so it probably will be that, without having thought about it in, in great depth. Making this assumption, they concluded that they could derive from the data, well, that means, our data means that humans should be able to discover, uh, to discriminate trillions uh, of orders. Turns out that to date, even, no one has really figured out what that dimensionality of odor space uh, really is. So I think to me, that paper, I think is a particularly good example that transparently you know, publishing work with data allows you to distinguish between the actual data and its conclusions quite well, and maybe derive very new, quite fundamental insights. The fundamental insights coming from that was that we need to understand better dimensionality of odor space. Um, uh, and, and you know, there's still ongoing discussions about what, which are the best experiments to actually tackle it. So the conclusion, certainly from today's perspective as well, we still don't know whether humans can distinguish trillions of odors. So that kind of, you could say, well, in that superficial sense, the conclusion of that paper is you know, wrong, but, um, but I think it's much, much deeper and more informative than that. Leslie Fossil is very active on Twitter. And now you just said the conclusion was wrong. 
you're gonna get skewered, Andreas. I, that's fine. That's fine. I, that's, <laughs> I think she uh, agrees that 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 superficially that conclusion is wrong. I would add even a little bit more. I, I very much agree with uh, uh, Andreas' uh, take on this paper because it's a fantastic data set. And, but you know, this brings us in, again to the dimensionality and the factor of dimensionality actually affect the exponent there. So. The estimate was uh, humans can estimate 10 to the power of 12 uh, orders, but this number 12, depending on dimensionality, can vary from 2 to 22. So that actually worrisome because if you don't know dimensionality, this exponent is not very, very precise. So I'm very happy for that paper because it provokes so much thinking, but I'm not very happy about this paper because I started reading in the books already that humans can discriminate trillion orders. And that's propagating of the meme that probably not yet scientifically uh, established. So, so Matt, so, for the editing, my conclusion is, should actually be, the conclusion of the paper at this point is still unclear whether it's trillions or not. It's not necessarily that the conclusion is wrong. I mean, no one no one has shown that it's not trillions. It's like a, the uh, clock that, do, that uh, doesn't work showed twice a day at the same time. A funny anecdote with respect to the trillion orders. Um, two, two, three years ago, so uh, my lab and a couple of neighboring labs went for a kind of a small day out. And one thing we did, we went to this little indoor mini golf place. And it was one of those where at every stage of the mini golf, you had the option to answer a question on the screen. If you got the answer right, you could go a simpler course. If you got it wrong, you had to go the more difficult course. So we went and you got all kind of answered who was which actor in EastEnders and what's the capital of, uh, of Idaho or whatever. And one, when we went to one stage, we looked up and the question was, humans can discriminate trillion odors, true or false? At an indoor mini golf court somewhere near White City, London. So, you know, we said, you know, that's not necessarily true. So we went there, we were told it was correct. We went to the manager and started having a discussion about the monitor. <laughs> Didn't help us, uh, but it was certainly quite a fun event for everybody. But we actually, you know, observe the, the birth of a new meme. This is actually a fascinating phenomenon. I think some people will be very interested in learning more about olfaction. Are there references or are there places you would want to point them like a, a review or a textbook or a blog where, where should they go if they want to learn more about olfaction there's been sort of a recent issue of cell tissue research journal with dozens of different reviews of the state of the art of olfaction it's very up to date it sort of came out i think january february 2021 so just now or a few weeks ago which might be a good starting point but i would say sort of a good and fun introduction into a little bit some people that do olfaction and the history of olfactory research. It's this book from Anne-Sophie Burridge about the philosophy or history of olfaction, smellosophy, what the nose tells the mind. If you're looking for an extremely comprehensive book on odors, the Springer Handbook of Odors, 2017 edition. If you want a meaty 1,500-page paper that categorizes every type of odor out there, it's a good reference. I wouldn't, I wouldn't read it like a novel, that's for sure. Okay. Olfaction is an exciting, very exciting uh, area and often underappreciated. Basically, people are much more attracted to vision, to audition in neuroscience. 
I think we can address the fundamental question in neuroscience and the simple, in relatively simple neural system. We can study everything from stimulus to behavior. It's a fascinating system and really underappreciated. So kind of expect more people to, to join the pool. It's the more the media, it's very interesting. To I, think, I think it's fair to say that if someone's really keen on understanding how the mammalian brain does something and wants to get a really mechanistic understanding, figure out how cells direct, how something's encoded and not predominantly describe that. I think olfaction gives you that compactness, gives you accessibility, small volume, small number of neurons, yet doing the most complex tasks. I would even kind of challenge people in the following ways. If we understand that how brain works, can we reproduce the percept can we be one step closer to the Matrix movie? Can we create a percept in our brain? And if you ask me in which system you can recreate a percept, I will bet on our function. But maybe I will be wrong. So this is things to test. So we're working on this. It's exciting field. Mm-hmm. Gabe, if there are any investors on the call who are really interested in this idea of getting a digital fingerprint of olfaction, how would they get in touch with you? Uh, they could reach out to me through my LinkedIn, or they could get in touch with me at uh, Gabriel at commonsense.co. Perfect. Or they could reach out to the Indie program or, or me directly. We're probably going to be hiring later this year people who are interested in this technology and in, interested in some of the impacts, the, the scientific side of things, the technological development of things. Feel free to reach out early and get in touch and learn more about us. Uh, there's a lot of interesting problems to be solved here because this technology has never been released in the world. Nobody's ever had a real-time portable sensor out there pulling down this massive quantity of molecular data. And I think we're going to start to uncover some really interesting things about the world from that across different industries, from pollutants in the environment and how they affect all sorts of different things. We, we feel it's a very meaningful endeavor and feel it's going to be a profitable endeavor too. I would add something that we're planning to do some scientific development in the very basic stuff in, at NYU in my lab and then expand technology to the company outside of the lab. So if people are interested in the first stage of you know, this technology, please also just contact me, look at my webpage, rinderclub.com. They specifically specify this project as bioelectronic nose. And if you want one controversial statement, Matt. Which I would love, yes. Uh, my wager is going to be that in the long term, using a BMI, we're going to be able to detect things better than a trained animal. The reason for this doesn't have to do with the filtering in the olfactory bulb. It has to do with the kinetics of gas flow, uh, detect things that are at great distance by having an a priori understanding of the speed at which those molecules arrive. So the pattern might not exist there in the dog's mind to be able to pick up. It might not have a holistic pattern that it's detecting in one sniff, but that signature might be stretched out in time and we might be able to pick that up. That's interesting. Andres, I think you've done a little bit about odor localization in your lab. We're looking at odor plumes. So not only the, the chemical structure of odors, but actually their the temporal structures, how concentrations change rapidly over time. And we find that you know, mice can actually detect these very rapid fluctuations at time scales of tens of milliseconds or faster. And there's a lot of information in that, which we know from the difficult study of 
turbulence, turbulent airflow. Mm -hmm. But if we then for do some kind of population recordings in the olfactory belt, be it with electrophysiological means or imaging or so, we can quite easily pick up signatures about uh, the temple structures of odors with very, very high precision, much more easily than we have been training animals and performing the same kind of discrimination. Yeah. So my sense from all those combination of complex behavioral experiments and different physiological experiments and a variety of linear and nonlinear classifiers thrown at data, certainly that as soon as you start having, let's say a tens or at least a hundred um, uh, recording sites, you almost inevitably are much better in, uh, in decoding the specific type of olfactory stimulus than animals show in uh, trained behavior if we train them over periods of days or weeks. So I'd be very much with you guys in saying that you can extract much more from the from the actual activity pattern that you will be able to record than you can train animals to report behaviorally. Yeah. Gabe, that must feel good because your bet turned out to be right within about five minutes of making it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you consider my statement to be a final judge on Gabe's bet. But you know, I was, I was really kind of referring to things that, and, and I think that that definitely adds to it. But you know, things that are very far off in the distance. Like if you have a dog that's trying to detect the scat of a whale two kilometers offshore, and the identifying pattern uh, which represents that scat is coming in very slowly, right? Like two minutes later, you know, or 50 seconds later, right? Not something that's in a, a small temporal fluctuation, but something that's spread yeah. out in time. So uh, gas chromatography, where the medium for chromatography is the air and the distance yeah. is very yeah. long. Yeah. And, and you can computationally integrate over much longer time scales that animals would typically integrate. Exactly. Expect, I guess you would expect yeah. that for normal, yeah. for normal um, behavior, you need to integrate over maybe a few seconds, but uh, not tens of seconds a minute. I would say that the challenge here, to my opinion, I think that you can train animal specifically to detect one specific feature of the signal. And if the task will be to integrate or just opposite to take a very brief clue, you can train an animal. The, the advantage of having brain-machine interface that we don't need to train, we can collect all information and then post-factum extract whatever we want, whenever we want, and as much as physical limits allows. So and those models are transferable between animals too, as long as you have, as you were saying, the fiduciary yeah. markers. Yeah. Yes, the physical limit, probably an specific detection task can be achieved by the animal as good as with BMI. But flexibility between the tasks and flexibility between the targets is what is very hard to achieve with the behavior and get multidimensional report. One very, very interesting aspect of the, the digitized sense world is that once you have it digitized, you have the ability to go back in time and parse that data for signatures which you didn't currently have at the time of recording the data. So if you're looking for when did a new virus cross through this airport and, and you're looking for the fingerprint of that virus, you can go back, parse the data and see if there's any recording of that virus and when it happened and where it happened. That's a really, really useful feature of digitizing the sense space. Well, thank you for taking the time with me today. I think people are gonna really find this interesting. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thanks yeah. a lot. Ah, smell awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So to answer, historical perspective.
perspective of the some ideas in in the field of function. There are a few popular books recently have been published, uh, not neuroscience but general what our function is. So our function actually often attract people to the role of function in everyday lives, how we perceive orders, how we discriminate wines. There's a lot about that. You know, the, there's a lot of literature like that, but scientific 